Good afternoon. I told Billy a little while ago it was taking us a little bit of time to get used to the new service time schedule. We're not used to being back at 1.30. We're used to being back at like 6 or 7. And where we were, it's a 45-minute drive both ways. So it's great to be that close, but time flies between end of services and beginning of this one. I told her, especially when the ladies have a half an hour meeting and cut into lunch like that, she said, we're going to have an hour meeting next week. So... Say ah, okay. <laughs> no, and it's good. I like the one thirty. It's uh, it's it's very nice to just turn around and come on back. I think I'm going to enjoy that. Go ahead and turn over to Genesis chapter twenty-five. That's where we're going to be based at this afternoon. You know, the U.S. economy over the past years has has had some struggles. It's had its ups and its downs. And while the economy seems to be bouncing back, there's still a lot of folks that are kind of paring down on non-essentials. They're just getting rid of things that they really don't think that they need anymore. You look at some of the online auctions and classified advertisings like eBay and Craigslist and some things like that. You see items that are, they're, they're, those places are just full of items for sale. Stuff that folks figure they can pretty much part with that they don't need anymore that'll get them a few extra bucks. It's, you know, for deal shoppers, it's a bonanza out there. You can find some great deals out there, but for sellers, it can be sometimes a little more painful getting rid of some of those things. You know, in the last several years, we've all known people who have had to take a, a, a huge loss on something that they loved whether it's a beloved home or, or something like that that they had to get rid of that they really couldn't afford anymore, so they've had to sell it, uh, especially when they had to sell it at something that was worth, at a price that was less than what they paid for it. So they took a huge loss on it. You know, cars, bikes, vacation homes, motor homes, you name it, someone out there is selling it. And they're selling it at a good price, good for you, bad for them. It seems like everything is negotiable these days. But that begs a question. Are there some things that you would never sell under any circumstance? If your situation became so dire, if you were stuck between rock bottom and a very hard decision, what would you absolutely hold on to regardless of the cost. Of course, we're not talking about just material things here. We're not talking about family heirlooms, precious family mementos, possessions, and, you know, photographs and things like that. You know, in a fallen world where sin has dehumanized people into commodities, a lot more than great-grandma's wedding ring is at stake when people decide to start selling things. Selling your children, for example, is reprehensible. We can't even imagine selling a child. Yet it happens in certain places around the world every single day. People sell children. It makes you sick, but it happens. Selling your own body has been historically a response to a bad economic situation. That's why prostitution is known as the oldest profession. You go all the way back in the Bible, it's almost the very beginning, and you see people selling their body. In many places around the world, 
the sex trade sells people, many of them children, into slavery on a daily basis. Selling illegal drugs puts people at risk of the slavery of addiction. When human life is judged by a dollar value, then virtually nothing is off the table. It means everything is for sale. But some things just should never be for sale. Integrity, for example, or freedom, or love, should never have a price tag. Those should never be for sale. Neither should one's body. And you can probably think of quite a few other things that should never be for sale, should never be on the market. In the ancient world, one item incorporated not only material things, but a person's identity and a whole lot more. And that item was the birthright. You sell that, and you have completely sold out everything. The birthright was a special privilege given to the firstborn male child. I kind of like that idea. I'm a firstborn male child. I kind of wish we had that idea here and there, but we don't. But firstborns, we had a special privilege. The birthright's economic value was, depending on the father's prosperity, often enough to set up the firstborn son for life. When he received his inheritance, he was set. He was good to go. As a father's at the father's death, the eldest son received the double portion of the inheritance, double what everybody else would get. If there were four kids in the family, then he would divide the inheritance up in five and give two of them to the oldest and then one to everybody else. He got double what everybody else got. But the inheritance wasn't just economic. It was also about leadership. Having the birthright meant exercising leadership over the family. The patriarch pretty much held the reins of leadership for the family. He was responsible for the family. He guided the family. He protected the family. He told the family where to go, where to live, what to do. He directed the business, everything. When the father dies and hands that birthright over to the oldest son, he takes leadership of the family. He's the boss now. He's in charge. The holder of the birthright made the decisions and ruled over his brothers. And the family would continue through his decisions. In short, the birthright was designed to ensure the family's future. It was designed to keep the family going. You mess it up and you mess up the family. You sell it and you have sold away the future. Genesis tells us that Isaac's twin sons were already vying for power when they came out of the womb. The older son Esau, we learn, would have been the prototypical leader. He was hairy, he was masculine. Very manly. Jacob comes out of the womb holding Esau's heel. 
And he's the opposite of his brother Esau. He's very fair, small, weak. Basically, you call him a mama's boy. He was a mama's boy. Esau was dad's favorite. Jacob was mama's boy. And that's the way they are. That's the way they grew up, and that's the way they died. The boys couldn't have been more different. Now, Rebecca, their mother, had already been wrestling with this turmoil before the boys were even born. She could feel them struggling within her. And she went to inquire of the Lord about the pain of having these twins. And God told her that these two struggling within her is going to eventually come to embody the struggle between two nations, between Israel and Edom. And yet their roles would soon be reversed. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. Now we're not sure if that's why Jacob the younger was her favorite, but we're going to see a little bit later that she's more than glad to help out to make sure that this oracle takes place, isn't she? She's more than glad to lend a helping hand. And we also don't know if Jacob knew about this oracle on the day he was cooking up some stew. But it was pretty clear that he was already working on a deal to take advantage of his strong but stupid and impulsive older brother. He knew what his brother was all about, and he was planning something. We get the impression that Jacob here wasn't just making stew. He was marketing stew, wasn't he? He knew where his brother was going to be coming in, and he was going to make sure that he could smell this, and he could see it. He might have even, this might have even been Esau's favorite food. He knew from experience that his brother was the kind of kid who wouldn't let his allowance even get warm in his pocket before spending it on the first shiny thing that he saw that made him happy. All Jacob had to do was advertise, and Esau was quick to make a deal. He was quick to take it. Esau comes in from the field. And he says he's famished, that he's about to die. He felt his circumstance was so desperate that if he didn't get something to eat right now, he was going to die. Y'all think Esau was going to die if he didn't eat right now? <laughs> that boy wasn't going to die. Not even close. Was he tired? Sure. Was he hungry? Probably. Was he going to die? No. He wasn't. It'd be hard to believe that Esau was that bad off after hunting. But you all know when circumstances are uncomfortable, we have a tendency to do what? Exaggerate, right? When we get uncomfortable, when our bellies start hurting and rumbling, when we get some aches and pains, you know, we, we tend to exaggerate sometimes.
We'll do anything to alleviate the discomfort. We'll do anything to alleviate the pain, to get rid of it, be it real or imagined. Now, those with high anxiety usually have poor impulse control. So they rely on instant gratification to take away their pain, if only for just a brief moment. That leads to an all-or-nothing way of thinking that amplifies even the smallest inconvenience into a life-or-death circumstance. And that's where Esau was right now. He felt that this was life or death. He had, he had ramped it up, and he just felt that if I wasn't going to get this, I'm going to die. And that's what effective marketing does, doesn't it? You look at commercials and advertisements, and they make, it, they make us believe that our lives will cease to exist if we don't use their product. And if it doesn't cease to exist, then our lives will be pitifully poor if we don't use their product. So if we want to keep existing, and if we want to keep a joyful life, we have to buy their product. Wanting it all and wanting it now is the fastest route to bankruptcy of both wallet and spirit. And Jacob times this perfectly. I mean, it's, timing is absolutely beautiful. You can almost see him pausing just long enough and maybe even waving some of that smell over toward his brother so that Esau could get a whiff of that and going, oh yeah, that's what I need. That's what I need right now. He wanted just to make his brother a little crazy probably. Verse 31 says, I'll be glad to give you some of this red stuff. But first, you've got to give me your birthright. First, you've got to sell me your birthright. Now, if Esau had just been thinking, he'd have known that no food or any other thing was going to be worth that birthright. Jacob knows that the value of this bowl of stew and the value of one's whole economic, social, and leadership position were not anywhere close to being equal. Yeah, it might have been a good bowl of stew, but it wasn't that expensive. He also knows that Esau, who is blinded by his anxiety, cannot even see past that bowl of stew. He can't see. Esau is willing to mortgage everything he could possibly mortgage just to have a taste of that stew. That same stew that he's probably ate many times before. He knew what it tasted like. But his stomach ruled over his brain and he sells his future for practically nothing. He gave up everything for zilch. Esau signs on the dotted line and eats perhaps the most expensive bowl of stew ever recorded in history.
Is Jacob culpable here for duping his lummox of an older brother? The Bible makes no judgment here on Jacob. Makes no judgment on him whatsoever. No judgment on his actions. Later, he's also going to cheat Esau out of his blessing, which technically Esau sold, didn't he? Technically, Esau sold that for a bowl of stew. So was he really stealing it, or was he just getting it the way he was supposed to deserve it? Essentially, that blessing is the patriarch's last will and testament and charge to his successor. Jacob, with his mama's help, with Rebecca's help, is deceptive in a legally binding way. Because once that blessing is given, it cannot be retracted. Cannot be taken back. He seals the deal that was originally struck over that bowl of soup. Esau sold off his inheritance over a bowl of stew. Everything. Can you imagine selling everything you have for one meal? Everything. Family. Money, home, cars, bank account, everything. Would you be able, would you willing to give that up for one meal? Esau did. Ja- Jacob, though, seems to have sold his integrity to gain wealth and power. Both of them have sold out for one reason or another. story is a constant reminder that there are some things that just shouldn't be for sale. No matter what the situation, no matter what the cost, some things that just shouldn't be for sale. We need to remember sometimes that one impulsive decision, one made amidst anxious circumstances, can have devastating ramifications for the future. One decision can sell off our whole future. A respected leader sells away his career and family for momentary pleasure in an illicit affair. And all of a sudden, everything is gone. Family. And don't think that there are some jobs out there that won't fire you if you have an affair. There are. There are some companies out there that will fire you in a heartbeat if you have an affair. business person who compromises his or her integrity by pocketing huge profits at the expenses of fair wages and the treatment of the company employees. A teenager who wrecks his or her future by dabbling in drugs just because uh, everybody else is doing it can destroy your entire life. A driver who takes the wheel after an evening of drinking and ends up in a crash taking other people's lives can we sell off things for moments of pleasure sure we can people do it in a heartbeat all the time it happens every day these are just a few examples I know you know more 
the point is, if we see ourselves as being valued by God and blessed by God, then we have inherent value regardless of what we own or what our circumstances might be. As long as we know that God loves us, we are valuable. And we are not worth selling. Do we allow God to determine our value? Or do we let anxiety drive what we feel that we need? How do we determine our value? Have we sold ourselves to the God who created us and cares for us? Who gives us everything that we need? Or are we willing to sell ourselves so cheaply to something in this life, basically to things that don't matter and have no value whatsoever? Are we willing to do exactly what Esau did in order to take away a moment of discomfort, in order for a moment of pleasure, are we willing to sell everything we are in order to have that? Now we know that despite the deception and stupidity in this story, somehow God is able to work all this out, right? God takes all this and makes it work for His purposes and for good. God doesn't abandon Jacob. God doesn't abandon Esau. They will eventually reconcile. They'll come back together. Jacob becomes Israel. A new nation is launched out from his family. Esau would become the father of another nation. The father of Edom. He'll be the father of the Edomites. Which, despite the brothers' reconciliation, is still always going to be at odds with Israel. Even when we have sold out to the world, we need to remember this, folks. Even when we have sold out to the world, God still values us as children. We may have forgotten our value. We may have assigned ourselves a value that is different. But even if we have sold out, God still values us and He still sees us as His children. Folks, we were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20. We were bought with a price. A price that was so high. A price that was so astronomical. It is beyond calculation. That price is what makes you valuable. The fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High Living God came to this earth and died for you makes you the most valuable people on the face of the planet. The most valuable things ever created are you. Don't sell out. We're going to sing a song of encouragement. If you have found yourself selling out, if you have found yourself selling your birthright for a bowl of stew, then we encourage you to come and talk to one of the elders and let's get you on the right track and let's help you see that you are valued by God and we'll go from there.
Whatever your needs are tonight, please come while we stand and sing.